Today is May 5th, 2022. And today, the CDC reports that 993,341 Americans have died thus far from COVID-19. The nation will cross the one million mark in the coming weeks. One million dead in the past two years. That's 25% more than the number of Americans who died in the Civil War, double the number of fatalities in World War II, 10 times more than Vietnam or World War I, 140 times greater than the number of Americans who were killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. But maybe war isn't the right comparison. Maybe other diseases provide better perspective. What about that other great pandemic, the 1918 global influenza pandemic? But there, too, 675,000 Americans perished from that flu, more than 300,000 short of COVID's toll. And AIDS? 700,000 dead over 40 years. So COVID stands alone, bearing the grim mantle of the deadliest event in United States history. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And isn't it strange, then, how invisible it all is? How the nation seems to be in a hurry to forget. Except, of course, for the millions more Americans, the mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, friends, and partners who cannot forget. Americans like Medina Hagen Morgan. Leslie was extremely funny. He was really, really silly. So he was brilliant. His mind was brilliant. The way that he thought about things, it was just beautiful. And his heart was unlike anybody's heart I've ever seen. He was so selfless. He only wanted to take care of his family and make the world a better place. Like, honestly, those were his goals. Medina and her husband, Leslie Hagen Morgan, lived in Los Angeles. Leslie died from COVID on January 18th, 2021. He was 38 years old. He was a coach and mentor. He started a, a nonprofit called City of Youth. He really wanted to make South L.A., which is the area he grew up in, he wanted to make it a better place. So he was affected by how gang-ridden it was and how it was so tough to grow up there and kind of stay focused and be focused without support. So he really wanted to be that support for the community. He wanted to do that through education and through providing a framework for people to be successful. COVID had changed everyone's lives since March of 2020. Over the holidays, though, Leslie, Medina, and their kids wanted to connect with family. So they took a trip to Atlanta. My mother-in-law is a nurse, and she was on, she was one of the frontline workers um, working in the COVID ward. And she happened to bring it to the home, to her home where we were staying. And she got sick first. And then my kids got it. Then I got it. Then my husband got it. Leslie got it. Unfortunately, we all got it and we all were recovering home and he seemed to be getting better. But on the 11th or 12th day, um, I was monitoring his oxygen and it just started dropping, you know, right before our eyes. 
on that day that I called 911, they took him to the hospital and he died maybe like an hour later. It was so fast. It was so drastic and it was so unpredictable. You know, I, I say this a lot. You, t- you take your vows and you say, till death do you part. But you never consider that actually happening. And my husband was 38. He was young. And we had plans. I mean, you know, like you go through life, you make plans. And honestly, when someone so close to you dies, it's like I've had to reevaluate everything. Reevaluate life without him and what that looks like dealing with the grief of myself and my children. He was truly an angel on earth. And, you know, we're doing everything to keep that memory alive for not just for my kids and my family, but for everyone, because he touched so many lives when he was alive. And he was such a dear friend to so many people. You know, I'm thanking God because I know God is with me through every step of this. And that's really been helping me and my family just get through it and to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm in many grief groups and, you know, that's also been an amazing support. And those are the little things that I've looked forward to, those those little pockets of hope in the midst of all of this that have been extremely incredible in, um, in us moving forward. Medina Hagen Morgan, remembering her husband Leslie, who was just 38 years old when he died in January 2021. After his death, Medina took over and continues to reach out to Los Angeles young people through her husband's nonprofit, City of Youth. Well, Mickey McElyay, professor of history at the University of Connecticut and author of The Politics of Mourning, Death and Honor in Arlington Cemetery, she joins us today. Professor McElyay, welcome to On Point. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And also with us is Marissa Renee Lee, author of Grief is Love, Living with Loss. Marissa, welcome to you. Hi. Thanks so much for having me today. So we're approaching that one million mark probably in the next couple of weeks. I have to say, it's hard for me to actually give that number meaning and shape because it's so huge and so vague almost. So let me just start by asking both of you, and Marissa, I'll turn to you first. How do you process what that number means? Well, it it is really tough to wrap our minds around. There is actually a phenomenon known as psychic numbing. And as the volume of losses increases, our brain's individual capacity to process the loss and have empathy for those who have lost loved ones actually goes down. So what you're speaking to is a normal psychological response. And, you know, in my case, as someone who knows grief, having lost a parent and a pregnancy Mm. and a young cousin to COVID, it feels personal to me. You know, my, my cousin and I were in close contact when I got a call from another family member in October of 2020 that she had died. And, you know, I had last texted her two weeks prior. So I, I, I can understand it and wrap my mind around it because I've experienced it. And I just think for, for folks who haven't experienced it, who, you know, did not suffer a physical 
loss of someone they love during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I would just ask them to remember that every one of these numbers is someone's personal tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is somebody's mother, father, sister, spouse, child, and it's it's really hard. And so I'm glad we're having this conversation today. And I'm glad you're also sharing stories from folks who've lost ones they love. Yeah, I'm going to want to hear your story in just a a second, Marissa, if you'd uh, be willing to share it with us. But let me uh, let Professor McElyay get a chance to answer that same question. I'm just wondering, how do you make sense or, or, or or, or put shape around this one million number, Professor? Right. And, and first, just let me say, Marissa, I'm incredibly sorry um, for your losses and the 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 losses that so many in this country have have faced and and continue to face. And I think to understand this one million figure is um, it's incredibly difficult to put something of that scale into graspable uh, and into a graspable sense. And I think that um, Megna, you started the 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 hour with comparisons to war losses, comparisons to other illnesses. You know, we look to these analogies to try to to try to understand the scope of something like this. Um, at 500,000, National Geographic magazine did a series on a variety of ways to visualize um, the scale of loss at, at, at 500,000. Um, you know, we've seen these different uh, different attempts and they're all staggering. And the other thing that I, I think we have to remember is that this is just the official number of recorded dead. Mm-hmm. There are so yep. many hundreds of thousands of more people who have been lost or who have had their lives transformed forever mm-hmm. by this pandemic. Mm. Well, Marissa, if you could, as or if you want to, let me say, as you know, we're trying to make a little bit of space, at least this hour, for a, a, a public remembrance of people, uh, loved ones who have been lost. So we have about a minute and a half before the first break. So I don't want to rush you, but uh, <laughs> do you want, I mean, if, would, if you'd like to, I, I'd love to hear about um, the people whom you still love who aren't with us. Yeah. So um, when I was 13, my mom first got sick with multiple sclerosis. And then as I was graduating from college, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. I was with her the day that she died, just two and a half years later. And what I didn't know at the time is that, you know, the second you lose someone you love, someone who you define as you know, one of your people, your life completely changes mm-hmm. and you shift from, you know, being a person in the world with my mother to being a person in the world without my mother and figuring out what it looks like to live with that loss. And, you know, over a decade later, <clears throat> excuse me, my husband and I lost a much wanted pregnancy. And when that happened, all I wanted in the world was my mom. And I realized mm-hmm. I wasn't over it. And now I firmly believe, and this is what I wrote about in Grief is Love, you don't get over it. Mm-hmm. When you experience a foundational loss, you have to learn how to live with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what you know. I hope we can help folks do today. Yeah. A little later, if you'd like, I'd like to hear about your cousin um, as well. And I, too, as Professor McElyay said, I'm very sorry, Marissa, for your losses. But 
that's what we're trying to do this hour, as Marissa Renee Lee has said, is, is make some space to think about, you know, how we as individuals and and as a nation contend with, grapple with these losses that we don't get over. So we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about the fact that in the coming weeks, the United States will cross a very grim threshold, one million dead from COVID-19. So we opened our voicemail line over the past couple of weeks and asked listeners to share with us the stories of people they've lost to COVID and how they would like those people to be remembered. And here's what Erin Kennedy from Litchfield, Connecticut, told us about her aunt. One in a million. Born Deborah Nancy Milano, my aunt was a hero. She was the reason our family gatherings were so much fun. She had the most unique laugh, cute and high-pitched like a child's laugh. If she laughed, everyone laughed too. Her laugh was contagious and she loved to laugh. She loved babies and kids that had a tender way of looking at us where we could feel every ounce of love she had for us dripping from her gaze like the tears she wiped from under her eyes when we were recovering from laughing so hard we cried. Erin Kennedy remembering her aunt. And here's Bruce Morrison from Buffalo, New York, talking about one of his loved ones. Tim O'Brien was in respiratory distress when he went to Buffalo General Hospital in an ambulance on October 9th, 2020. But COVID-19 didn't just attack his lungs. By the time the longtime president of the Maritime Charter School Board of Trustees died, the virus had damaged much of his body, including his kidneys, liver, heart, bone marrow, and brain. His daughter, Erin, tells how, in the end, COVID destroyed him. It took somebody who was alive until the last second. It's horrible. Tim was a relentlessly positive person who maintained friendships with many people, including some from early childhood days. He was part of a crew of men that had sailed a vessel known as Gusto in races on Lake Erie for 35 years. As Aaron wrote in her journal, we should have had him for many more years, for more hugs and love, for more laughter, for more travel, more dinners, more wine, more everything. COVID was cruel and robbed him and us of that. One of the hardest things about losing a parent during COVID is that you really can't celebrate them the way they should be celebrated. That's Bruce Morrison, a non-point listener from Buffalo, New York. Uh, Marissa Renee Lee, 
There's something about not only what Bruce said, but how he said it, which must resonate with millions of people. There's this almost rage that not only is this they're the loss of the loved one, but that because of the pandemic being what it was, people couldn't be honored or celebrated because we lost all of our uh, community traditions around mourning and and grief and, and celebration. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really tough when I had to pick up the phone and call my aunt and tell her how sorry I was that she lost a third child. Mm. And then to also have to say, and you know, we can't be there. Like that was one of the most difficult conversations I've had to make in my life. And, you know, my husband and myself and other cousins, we watched a brief outdoor masked memorial service via Facebook Live. And there was a lot of anger in that. You know, you feel like you've been doubly cheated. It's bad enough that you lost someone, but you also lost the ability to mourn and celebrate and comfort people the way that we often try to do when someone dies. And it's just, it's it's an incredibly difficult time. And I hope that folks who are listening, who are trying to figure out how to wrap their minds around this number and, you know, what they can do, I think the most important thing is to just move through the world right now with as much compassion and empathy as possible. Mm-hmm. Like you have no idea who's grieving. We know that at a million dead, there are millions of people, hundreds of thousands of children who are experiencing grief for the very first time. And none of them are walking around wearing a t-shirt that says I'm grieving. So I think just the emphasis on compassion and empathy and really listening when you ask people how they're doing right now is important. Mm. I keep coming back to how the invisibility is part of why we as a nation are are, are struggling with, with how to mark this moment. And perhaps we may not even mark it at all. I don't know. But, um, you know, President Biden tried to do something of the sort uh, for example, on the eve of, of his inauguration, then-president-elect, uh, grieved the then-roughly 400,000 Americans uh, who had died at a ceremony at the Lincoln Memorial. To heal, we must remember. It's hard sometimes to remember. But that's how we heal. It's important to do that as a nation. That's why we're here today. Between sundown and dusk, let us shine the lights in the darkness along the sacred pool of reflection. Remember all whom we lost. President Biden in January of 2021. Professor McElyay, obviously we as people as individuals and and families are, are struggling, but then, you know, they are part of this nation as a whole. Can you talk to me a little bit about the struggles we've had as a nation in in uh, coming together and deciding how to, to, to mark major losses like this or, or, or to mourn people? Sometimes we seem we're, we're pretty good at it. Right? You wrote, you've written an entire book about Arlington National Cemetery. Other times we're not so good at it, right? Right. Although every time it's a fraught process. And I think nothing brings people together 
in the way that shared mourning does and a shared experience of loss. Um, but nothing heightens emotions so much as that as well. And we see that in the attempts to create various, uh, various memorials or moments for honoring. Uh, I think that on the eve of the inauguration, that event was both incredibly necessary, but also necessarily framed through politics. It was framed through the inauguration itself. Um, mm -hmm. And so that kind of um, those elements of divisiveness that continue to fuel, um, I think, some of the, the significant problems, the crisis of memorialization we're having around COVID. Um, and that that only exacerbates exactly what Marissa was describing in terms of you know, our need to move through the world, understanding how many people are affected. I, at, at this point, there's so few people, I think, who aren't affected. Um, but that the isolating nature mm -hmm. of that, um, that's the kind of thing that can be addressed with a, a truly national memorial, a truly national moment yeah. or series of moments to to recognize that that not only have individuals lost loved ones, but this country has lost such value in these people who have been torn from the fabric of, mm -hmm. of our communities and our nation. And that, I think, is, is, has been consistently missing in this, in this, um, in this experience. Mm -hmm. While local communities and activists have worked very hard to fill the gap, but there is a gap that needs to be addressed at a national level. Marissa, I, I heard you there a couple of times. Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say I completely agree. You cannot heal from that which you don't acknowledge. So we need to find a way to create space for the acknowledgement that folks who've lost loved ones rightfully deserve, the acknowledgement that we all deserve. And there is a gap at the national level. And I would like to see the president step in and fill that gap. Grief is not political. And I think, you know, regardless of your political persuasion, you have to agree that President Biden knows grief. He knows grief better than most of us, frankly, ever will. So he recognizes that each one of those numbers is an individual tragedy. And I am hopeful that he will step up as we cross this incredibly devastating threshold. I'm looking to him to really, to really lead on this. You know, um, I, I completely hear you, Marissa, when you say grief, it, grief is not political, because no matter what your party affiliation, you as we as individual human beings will ex, will experience grief, as you've said. Uh, and at the same time, I think something that both of you are getting to is it sounds like you're saying that that it's it is politics and um, the way that the nation different uh, leaders in the nation have um, addressed the COVID crisis that is standing in the way of a national moment of, of mourning and memorialization around this because there are many people who would rather not remember it at all because they don't even want to acknowledge that the crisis yeah. uh, happened and is happening. Is that what you're saying, Marissa? Yeah, and I, and I think that what we need to do is focus on the fact that it doesn't matter what you thought about COVID or vaccines or wearing a mask or anything else. If you lost someone you love, you are experiencing the same kind of brokenheartedness as someone who, you know, was masking and advocating for vaccines. And, and I think that what we need to hone in on is 
the collective pain and grief of those who've lost loved ones and give them give them something that would provide some sense of comfort, mm-hmm. you know, give them a memorial or a day of remembrance. You know, I, I know that it is very hard to get things done here in Washington. Like I'm speaking as someone who worked in the Obama administration for four years, but having worked in the White House, I also know that there is there is very little that is as powerful as the presidential pulpit. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that President Biden will really lead us through this time of grief and and help everyone heal. Yeah. So, Professor McElyay, I'm, I'm still thinking about the fact that you wrote this whole book about Arlington National Cemetery, because I think even even if war is not the right analogy, it's an instructive one. Right. Because the United States has come together around certain war memorials and has not around others, right? There's, you can pick, you pick them, like the Vietnam War Memorial. It was a controversial one because the United States collectively did not necessarily want to memorialize what had happened in Vietnam. And now we have similar controversies over, um, I shouldn't say controversies, but there's a reckoning over whether we should be memorializing, um, you know, Confederate troops in the South. So, so, the reason why memorials are important is because they are what we choose to acknowledge and decide not to forget. Right, Professor? Exactly. And every memorial is also marking who isn't included in that honor, who isn't there. Um, And part of my work on Arlington National Cemetery also describe the process of who is not included, who hasn't been included mm-hmm. over time, and how that, how national belonging is negotiated in those contexts. A place like Arlington necessarily marks everyone who is interred there or honored there as an honorable person, as an honorable figure who is worthy of the country's um, respect who's worthy of the country's care. It's also a sign of of a benefit um, to that is um, earned through the 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 sacrifice of service. Um, and I think, therefore, the 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 comparisons to war are are apt. Um, the problem is that we're not treating this then as something that's worthy of collective honoring. Mm. You know, we're using martial metaphors and certainly were in attempts to try to collectively rally people around public health initiatives to the extent that that happened um, under the Trump administration. But that stopped at at death. Mm-hmm. And those people weren't honored in the same way or, or treated in the same way. And I think a, a significant part of that um, both from the beginning of the pandemic and as it's continued and 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 we've lost so many is the disproportionate effect this pandemic has had on different communities within the United States right. um, and that we're we're seeing the reflection and the continuation of, of other structural inequalities that mm. have fueled this pandemic so I'm very taken by this notion of of uh, a nation, communicating or demonstrating through its memorials who is worthy of remembering because it it brings to mind how hard people in the past and in the near past have had to fight 
to be welcomed into that circle of, of worthiness, essentially. Um, and we have a couple of examples here. First, I want to talk for a moment or listen, actually, to for a moment to Brian Stevenson, right? He's, he's the lawyer who was really the force behind the creation of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And here's uh, a little bit what, of what he said about why the nation needed to have uh, a, a, a physical memorial for black Americans who had been lynched over the course of U.S. history. We don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about segregation. We have to own up to the fact that there are places in this country where humans were trafficked, where there were slave auctions. We have to acknowledge the places. We have to recognize the places where terror lynchings took place. There aren't places you can go in this country and be confronted with the history of racial terror and violence and walk out and say, never again. And because nobody says never again, what we see happening is, well, it happening again. And so we have to do that truth-telling work. And then when we tell the truth, only when we've told the truth, can we begin the hard part of repair. Marissa, respond to that. Does that uh, apply in the, in the context of the million, uh, one million Americans who've died from COVID? Absolutely. You know, I am I'm a huge Brian Stevenson fan, so not totally impartial here, but <laughs> it it 100% applies and I think I think this is also why in this country we haven't yet had true racial reconciliation. You know, h- how can you heal from something that hasn't been properly acknowledged? And I think that people have a hard time with, you know, figuring out how to acknowledge and memorialize something like a pandemic. I think historically, and I I will defer to the uh, to the historian on this, but I think it is much easier when there is an other to point to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about how we have continued, rightfully so, to memorialize September 11th, for instance. You know, I I'm a native New Yorker, and we were just in New York a week ago. And wherever you go, you are bound to see you know stickers and windows bumper stickers, car license plates, et cetera, that say, never forget. How do we do the same for this pandemic? Like that is the question that I think we need to answer because it's not, it's just not fair and it's not morally okay to leave people in their suffering without any form of acknowledgement. Mm. Professor McElyea, we've got about 30 seconds before our next break, but do you have an answer, or at least the beginnings of an answer to Marissa's question about how would we do this? I wish I had a great answer for you, but the the one thing that I would really like to see happen, um, and we can talk about this also more, but we need a national moment of silence where every single person in this country can stop and pause and remember and feel connected to one another. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about other uh, efforts and attempts to, to remember great losses. Um, And we'll hear more from On Point listeners who have lost loved ones to the COVID pandemic. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
as long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about the fact that in the coming weeks, the United States will cross the one million mark. That's the number of Americans who will have died from COVID-19, making this pandemic the single deadliest event in United States history. Well, let's listen to a moment to Barry Joseph. He lost his father to COVID. His father was 87 and died April 2020. My dad, Paul Joseph, uh, was a pediatrician for 39 years on Long Island. He was a very loving dad, very funny guy. You know, this is a guy who spent his days having to give kids shots. So he had to learn the skills to kind of distract them and make them laugh. And he loved our family, us being together. That was important for him. On the first night of Passover, April 2020, my dad canceled an hour before. And this was during COVID, so we weren't meeting in person. Everything was being done on Zoom. And I was running the Seder, the Seder that he used to run when I was growing up. And when he canceled, I knew something was wrong. And when I spoke to him afterwards, he was feeling dizzy and had a number of other symptoms. They weren't traditional COVID symptoms, so we didn't think it was COVID, but we knew something wasn't right. And by the next day, he went to the hospital. So we were quite surprised when a day later, they told us he had COVID. The things that we understood at the time to expect from someone with COVID in the hospital, like being uh, intubated, he was not experiencing those things. A week later, he left, he went to a rehab, and they told us that, you know, after a few weeks of rehab, he should be able to go back to his home. But after 36 hours in the rehab, they called us and said, he's going to die and he can't die here. So I ran over to the rehab and I argued with the EMTs who were very kind to me to say, don't take him, please leave him here. He's going to be worse in in the hospital. And they helped me understand that that wasn't possible. But they gave me the space to do what I wanted to do, which was to spend time with him. I couldn't go into the rehab. I couldn't go into the hospital, but he was going to be taken out of the rehab and going into the ambulance. That could happen slowly. So the EMTs let me spend 10 or 20 minutes with him he had a a mask on to help him with breathing. So it would kind of fill up with air and then he would kind of breathe it in and the mask would collapse and it would fill up again with air. He would breathe it in again. And while he couldn't speak, I could hold his hand. I wore a glove at the time. I I covered myself, I think maybe even a garbage bag so I could throw it out afterwards and got to tell him I loved him and and got to see his face and, and squeeze his hand and touch his shoulder and just kind of be with him. And then the EMT surprised me and said, you can follow us if you want. You can see him again when he comes out. So it's kind of like in one of those action movies when you're like racing down the road with the sirens on. They turned on their lights. We ran through the red light and I followed them all the way to the hospital. And then I got to spend a few minutes with him again when they took him out of the ambulance but didn't take him yet into the emergency room. And that was the last time I saw him in person. So when he died, this was right in the beginning of COVID. It was just the first few weeks of Americans passing away. It was very, very strange. I had this very personal loss and it was hyper-local. You know, my dad died you know, right, right around the corner from my house. But at the same time, he was number 52,000. 
Barry Joseph, remembering his father, Paul Joseph. I'm joined today by Mickey McElyay, professor of history at the University of Connecticut and author of The Politics of Mourning, Death and Honor in Arlington National Cemetery. And Marissa Renee Lee joins us as well. She's author of Grief is Love, Living with Loss. You know, I, I feel like when it comes to finding a way to a national remembrance of some kind, the United States has has a has a, has a problem has a challenge <laughs> because both of you have mentioned very rightly that it's easier to f- to understand how to memorialize something when there's an other right uh, that people who died uh, in the face of an enemy for example but we have uh, we don't have that with covid we don't have um, the the visibility of those who have died because of the fact that it was a disease, right? And and people had to be, they had to die essentially in isolation. And so families also then didn't get a chance to have the memorial ceremonies that uh, we usually do. But also, the United States likes to believe that it's exceptional. And so what we would be we would be memorializing in this case is our collective failure. Right? I mean, we have a quarter of the world's deaths and far uh, fewer percentage of that in the world's actual population. I mean, Professor McElyay, let me turn to you on this first. The U.S. doesn't necessarily have a great history of memorializing its own failures, right? Exactly. And what we're looking at is to have a national memorial or a a series of national moments of memorialization is to reckon with our collective failures. And I I think um, something that's also, though, tempered by, I'm I'm still so struck by Barry Joseph's account of, of of, of losing his father, but of the EMTs you know, giving him that time to to be with him and, and giving him more time at the end. I mean, what we've also witnessed is millions of little moments of care and kindness from from people. And to memorialize our losses would be to to honor those connections. And I think in the absence of an enemy that you've described, too often we've made enemies of one another mm-hmm. in the context of a fraught political environment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Marissa said earlier that that no matter what you believe, no matter what your politics, you experience loss as painful. Right. You experience loss as a human being, um, not as a particular identity category or a particular belief system. And that if we are able to remember those shared human, our shared human condition, um, then that's a way perhaps to start building from, um, building from these, these difficulties. Now, I, I, I'm not a naive person, though. I understand how um, sometimes it feels impossible. But then a story like Mr. Joseph suggests that, you know, we're a lot better than we think we are. Mm-hmm. And we need to lean into that. Yeah. Marissa, um, what you, I'm still so struck by what you said earlier, that grief never leaves us. When someone who is so central to our lives that we're connected to dies, yep. we never get over it. Although I, I think in Western cultures, dominant Western cultures, that they, they like to sort of think that you can get over it, right? But um, 
what's the consequence then of not finding some kind of way to to, to mark the loss, to memorialize it? What, what do you think the long-term consequences might be for us? I mean, the long-term consequences of unacknowledged grief are scary. You know, it's things like worsening depression and anxiety and higher rates of addiction. So, you know, this country continuing to lean in on being such a grief-averse society doesn't serve any of us. And I think for, for folks who are eager to move on, to be over the pandemic, I completely understand that. You know, we've all lived through a period of collective grief and trauma for the last two years, and we want it to be over. But I think it's important to remember that if you lost someone in the midst of it, there is no getting over it. There is just learning how to live with the grief. And in Grief is Love, I redefine grief as the repeated experience of learning to live in the midst of a significant loss. And I think the best way for the rest of us to help those who have lost close loved ones and family members is to give them the space to grieve, to acknowledge what they've lost, and to acknowledge even all of the little losses that came with that physical loss. You know, hearing Barry's story, I I got goosebumps. You know, I cannot imagine losing my mother and not having the ability to exert control Mm. over what the end of her life looked like. Like that is something to grieve as well. You know, maybe his father always wanted to die at home and they weren't able to allow that to happen, for instance. So I I just, I think, I think it is really incumbent upon all of us to both move with more empathy and compassion and to push our elected leaders to create some space for public mourning and recognition. Hmm. The repeated experience, that's so key, right? Because it's not just like a person dies, we grieve, we mourn, and wake up, you know, a month later and everything's fine. The repeated exactly. experience. Well, you know, we, I was, we've been spending some, some time uh, in researching this show, trying to think again of various examples across U.S. history where, uh, you know, memorials were created or an event was memorialized, whether it be, you know, uh, collectively and sort of with national support or without. And so we have to talk for a second, um, because I think it is so apropos, about the AIDS epidemic, right? Because similarly, you know, a a disease um, that was ravaging certain communities uh, in, in this country and early on, People didn't want to acknowledge it, right? That, that at the national level, there was a staunch yeah. refusal to acknowledge it. And then when it was acknowledged, it to heap the blame on the very people who were suffering and dying from the disease. Eventually, after years of activism, the AIDS memorial quilt was created. Both of you will remember this, of course, a giant quilt with the names yeah. and, and, uh, and stories of people who had died of AIDS. So here, here's a little bit of tape. This is from activist Cleve Jones in 1993 about how he came up with the idea for the AIDS memorial quilt. I remember as a child, whenever I was sick or tired, grandma or my mom would bring out this quilt and I'd lie down on the sofa and trace the images of this quilt with my fingers. And as I thought of it, I thought, well, 
What a warm, comforting, middle-class, middle-American, non-threatening, traditional sort of symbol. And maybe this is the symbol then we should match with this disease that's killing homosexuals and African-American women and children and drug addicts and other people that our society has still not yet come to fully value. That's Cleve Jones, AIDS activist, speaking in 1993 and about how he came up with the idea for the AIDS memorial quilt. And, and you, might, you might remember that this isn't a small quilt we were talking about. It was vast, laid out uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and growing all the time as more panels were added uh, as people continued to die from AIDS year after year. And Kent Bloom is one of the folks who visited the AIDS memorial quilt Many times, at least four times, he lived in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s and lost his partner and many friends to AIDS. The AIDS quilt represents to me that we don't do life alone, we don't die alone. It's an artistic, spiritual, and I just think example of how we grieve collectively. Mickey Macaulay respond to that, and particularly the fact that, yes, it, it turned into a form, a kind of a national memorial, but it had to ap- happen because the very communities who were suffering the most demanded it. Well, exactly, that it was a response from activist communities to the, um, the, the state and communities rendering um, those who were dying and had died from AIDS invisible or demonizing them, making them hyper-visible as threats to the country. This was incredible um, expressions of of homophobia, of racism, of um, American uh, uh, kind of isolationism, fear of of people from from other countries. Um, And that Memorial Quilt is a is a beautiful example not only of collective memorialization but it's also a complete flip on the usual martial monument the names think about the names on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial the listing of names and the honoring of of lost soldiers and instead it took a quilt and blanketed our most um national sacred space of of remembrance uh, and covered it. But Cleve Jones points to something really important. It did that through an appeal to this warm, he calls it middle class, middle American. We're still stuck in cycles where people have to somehow prove their worth to be honored. Mm. People have to make themselves recognizable to, quote unquote, middle America, middle class people instead of um, honoring people for who they are, where they are. And, and, and so I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, and it's a brilliant clip because it encapsulates all of those pieces that, that Jones and other activists were, were working toward to try to change this country. Mm. Well, as we, uh, head towards the last few minutes of the show. I just wanted to note that, uh, I mean, of course, we're talking specifically in the U.S. context here, but, you know, other countries, even China, for example, I believe back in 2020, so early on in the pandemic, the entire nation of China stopped for three minutes on a Saturday uh, for a, a, a three-minute-long moment of silence to honor and remember those who had already died in China We've done it, various little versions of it here in the United States. For a while, there was that tradition of people 
applauding every evening for first responders in the early weeks and months of the pandemic. But there needs to be more now. And here's Congressman Greg Stanton of Arizona. He's the lead sponsor of a House resolution in support of a COVID Memorial Day. It's got 67 co-sponsors at the moment, all of them Democrats. But Congressman Stanton says he wants to attract Republican support, too. Those that are suffering from long-term COVID, those that have lost loved ones, we see you, we hear you, we will not forget you. We understand that your family, the loss of your family member is first and foremost a loss to you, but it is also part of a larger national tragedy. Marissa, we've got 30 seconds left, I'm afraid, but I'm going to give you the last (laughs) word here today. There are people listening who most definitely directly suffered these losses uh, and will continue to experience that repeated that repeated experience, as you said. What would you tell them now as we approach that one million number? First of all, I want to say I'm sorry. You know, I unfortunately know grief well, and I'm really sorry for your loss. The second thing I want to say is what you're experiencing right now is normal. You know, I know we tend to try and isolate grief to, you know, a two-week period after someone dies, but you will, as far as I can tell, 14 years out from my mom's death, continue to experience it on and off forever. So be good to yourself. Well, Marissa Renee Lee, author of Grief is Love, Living with Loss. Marissa, I'm so sorry for your losses, but doubly grateful that you could join us today. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. And Mickey McElyea, professor of history at the University of Connecticut and author of The Politics of Mourning, Death and Honor in Arlington National Cemetery. Professor McElyea, similarly to you, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>